This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I could have backed off, (laughs) but that ain't racing. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Took it all the way into the racetrack. Lord, if you just get me back these 5,000 miles, I got to go and get me back home. I promise you one thing, I won't be back. 
Don't you ever forget, I'm a daddy too. Well, you should have seen it, that wreck from my side. That ride back from Darlington, from that day forward, I made it my life's commitment to do whatever I had to do to become a Winston Cup driver. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where we are in desperate need of a sound engineer. <laughs> Any volunteers? Steve, I don't know what happened, but this morning to get all set up, get all the equipment set up, all the microphones, the soundboard, and for some reason, my computer won't open the <laughs> recording application that I use. So. Well, technology is wonderful until it goes bad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially with me. So, yeah, I'm not a sound engineer by any means, so we will just make do with another microphone that we have. Steve, this week we have an awesome episode on tap. This week we're going to go back and we're going to talk about the 1990 Daytona 500. That, of course, was such a dramatic moment on that last lap. Absolutely. And going to be talking to Derek Cope about that race. It was interesting to get his perspective. Also, I have a clip that I did with Kirk Shelmerdine mm-hmm. when I was writing my book, Dell versus Daytona. And I think that it gets across very, very well the emotion of what was taking place in the RCR pit at the end of that race. Well, you know, it had to be very emotional. Don't want to give it all away here, but obviously Dale did not win that race. And he did, in fact... Lose on the last lap with a cut tire. Also, what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about where that race ranks in terms of all-time upsets in NASCAR history. Certainly, it's right at or very near the top of the list. Yeah, it's got to be near the top for no other reason than the way it played out. It was so dramatic. Plus, you got to look at the circumstances as well. Everybody knows that by that time, Dale had not won a Daytona 500. He was still scrapping to win one. He leads 155 laps of this race, which is 200 laps. And on the last lap, he is in the lead. And what happens? Well, like I said, he ran over something and cut down a tire. Now, the other side of the equation, who would have ever thought that the guy in second place would be Derek Cope? He was racing for a little outfit called Bob Whitcomb Racing. He had one advantage, though. Buddy Parrott was his crew chief, which is a good thing for him. But nobody, and I mean nobody, would imagine Derek Cope to be in a position to win that race. Steve, also on tap, we're going to be going back, and we're going to be talking about the 1989 race at Phoenix, a race that I remember very well for other reasons, and we'll talk about that in a second. But... It's another reason why the Scene Vault project is very important because I had forgotten the details until I went back and went through the next week's issue of Winston Cup Scene. I pretty much did the same thing. And uh, what I remember about that race so long ago was the fact that Rusty Wallace, not through his own efforts, almost gave the championship away at Phoenix. Certainly put him in a position where he went to the next race in Atlanta and he was not a shoe in by any means. Finally, we have more Patreon supporters to thank. We have new support from Doug Thompson and Dr. Chuck Yadmark. Now, does that name ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Chuck was a longtime freelance photographer for Scene from Michigan. He's a big Wolverines fan. He threw us a little support, Steve, so I really do appreciate that. That's wonderful. Also, we had increased support, and I mean increased support, from Mary Egan. She's my new best friend. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, she's on my friend list too. Steve, this exclusive content that we've been doing has been a hit. Good. With our listeners. So here's a short little clip from this week's exclusive content about our most memorable moments. And I'm like you. There are so, 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 so many that I could name. I could name any of the practical jokes that Buckshot Jones and I played on each other. I could name going to dinner with Bill Baumgartner and his wife Bobby at Wolfgang Puck's restaurant in L.A. I could name, you know, just several. Yeah, I imagine you could. But the thing that I keep coming back to is the 1998 Daytona 500. Mm -hmm. So listeners, if you like what you hear, consider supporting us on Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Steve, editing this sound <laughs> can be a job. Taking out all the breaths and the uhs and the does and the repeats and all and that. And the four letter words. <laughs> <laughs> but on Derek's interview, if you'll notice, there's a banging on the mic stand. You can hear it kind of on the on yeah. the mic stand. And that's something that I would ordinarily take out of an interview. But this time I chose to leave in some of those because he was banging into the mic stand with his Daytona 500 ring. (laughs) (laughs) So, Derek, take it away. Now, in 1988, you ran 26 of the season's 29 races for Jim Testa. And then the following year, Bob Wickham took over as car owner a few races into the season. Are those the seasons that you feel maybe kind of put you over the hump and gave you kind of a solid footing in sport? Obviously, that was the really the the start of being able to run, you know, consistently showing yeah. up, you know, to the to the majority of the races and and being able to really feel like you were gaining, you know, a week in and week out consistency of learning uh, all the tracks and gaining experience. And uh, obviously, wasn't in the best of equipment at that point in time, but you know, a lot, not a lot of people were back then. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, yeah, it was a great learning experience for me, and then. Obviously, we kind of uh, came into our own, um, you know, shortly after that when uh, when Buddy Parrott came on board. And uh, really, that, that, that winter, putting all that together really was the culmination of really of, of great things uh, to come. In 89, Buddy joined the team. And they're the last, you know, several races of the season. You had a two or three top tens. Uh, you finished top 12 top 13 the last several races of the season i think with the exception of one or two things seemed to click with him what was it like working with him what did he bring to the table buddy was uh obviously you know a pretty good chassis guy he was what i called a mr fix it uh yeah. when the car was tight he'd make it loose when the car was loose he'd make it tight he could find a way to make the car go a certain direction, and he could get to that point relatively quickly. Uh, and Buddy certainly, I think, had you know a lot of friends in the sport, and if he needed you know, something, he was able to procure it. And but overall, Buddy was certainly, I think, one of the premier motivators uh, of people. Uh, Buddy's personality. Uh, you know, he could be harsh, yet he could be fun to be around. And he, I think, Buddy really got the most out of the people around him and uh, that's the one thing that i i really truly felt uh from the from the start you know is that he had a dynamic personality uh he demanded respect you know and and i think um 
uh, people, you know, certainly, uh, you know, with what he had done in the past, you know, gave that respect. But uh, certainly felt fortunate at that time to get Buddy. And, um, you know, again, it was just something that, you know, you talk about chemistry, you talk about clicking. And certainly I think Buddy and I, we just kind of, you have credibility and mm-hmm. you believe in that credibility and you uh, give him his his ability to go out and do what he needs to do and then you uh, you know you succumb, you succumb to to what his knowledge is and you go for it and uh, you believe in that and I think that's really how uh, how that started with buddy how would you describe his personality you said that he had a dynamic personality and that can mean a whole bunch of different things was he a fiery guy was he a funny guy was he uh, you mentioned he was, you know, demanded respect, but how how did he demand that respect? Well, I think you just said it all. I think he touched on about every emotion that you had. He <laughs> is uh, one of those very unique individuals that uh, certainly is uh, kind of your best friend, funny joke around, all kinds of stories from the old days. Uh, he brought so many things to the forefront, uh, which made you feel a part of the sport and, and, and understand how things, you know, had gotten to that point. And then at the times that he was mad or he was upset, um, he could show his intensity and, and make you believe in the fact that, you know, you had to be driven, you had to be focused. And and then, you know, he also, you know, I think just his demeanor, just his his look and the way he towered over, he just, I think when I say demanded respect, I think he just exuded the fact that you had to respect him yeah, as an individual. Yeah. And I think that was his, his, his biggest thing. And I think that he had uh, so many of the elements that it took to be you know you know productive and um, I think people just wanted to uh, perform for him going into the 1990 season realistically what were your expectations what were you wanting to accomplish that year I just was looking for you know uh, a year of just trying to really uh, learn and to be productive and be consistent and to really showcase that you know uh, my ability uh, we had done a lot of exciting things prior to that with subpar effort with subpar teams and limited schedules i mean sitting on outside poles and finishing sixth and ninth and 11th at charlotte uh places that were difficult and we were doing it with no money and and uh, relative uh, inexperience and i think what i was looking for was what i saw like you said was the fact that uh, we had something to really build on and Mm -hmm. we're looking for you know to create a foundation and um obviously at that time the restrictor plate racing and all the things were just starting to you know things were changing uh and buddy just certainly had a real feel for aerodynamics and uh, obviously you know uh, had relationships for engines and things to, to bring all the pieces of the puzzle together when we really didn't have a great deal of funding even at that time uh, to uh, to utilize so it was really a year of just trying to hope you know hope for uh, you know a good consistent year to, to, to build on to build on now you qualified 12th mm-hmm. for the Daytona 500 and again I go back to the question I asked about the season in general when you qualified 12th, what were you expecting out of the Daytona 500 that year? Well, when you qualified 12, obviously that was through the 125. Right. So, you know, I knew what kind of car I had in the 125. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I got, I think I finished sixth in my, in my, in my twin. And I knew the car was fast. And, um, you know, obviously I was relatively inexperienced in restrictor plate racing. Uh, but, knew that I had something that uh, was, I had a big stick and I knew it. And uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, the biggest thing was, is that the happy hour, uh, you know, um, you know, we were one of the few cars really that could run with Dale and, you know, our, and I was being careful and, uh, you know, I called my brother that night and I told him, I said, uh, I know this will sound funny, but, uh, you know, I can win this thing. 
I said, this car's that good. And he goes, you're kidding. I said, no. I said, I can just take care of it. I said, I think, you know, I'll have a shot. And, um, you know, and Buddy said the same thing. You know, Buddy said, look, he says, it'll come down. You just got to gotta hang tough. You got to stay out of trouble. We just got to ride. And he said, at the end, there'll be a caution. We'll get a shot at these guys. And, and sure enough, I mean, everything that Buddy had had laid out really came to fruition. Uh, you know, the racetrack came, the, the race actually came to us the way it did. You know, we obviously stayed out and uh, we're on used tires and Earnhardt had fresh tires. And, you know, for us to be on his bumper every last lap there, um, you know, we were on used tires and we were hung out and we were hanging on. And uh, but, you know, we had a shot. And certainly as uh, as fate had it, uh, it was our it was our day. Now, you were in position to win that race. You were running second and you ran well the entire day. Now, Earnhardt was obviously the class of the field for most of the day. I mean, he had leads of 20, 30, 40 seconds at times. But you were still running second, third, fourth, top five, certainly. I was lifting all day. I was I was taking care of the car. I had a car. I was, I was pedaling the car. The car was loose. The car was free. Uh, but I would, you know, I wasn't taking any chances. And when, you know, when we, our car would go away a little bit, I'd just pedal the thing. And buddy just say, hang tough, you know. And we we knew, I, I knew that when I, if I could go, at the end of the race, I could go wide, flat on the mat. I could have a have a shot. My car was good enough when I could drive it flat out. And I just pedaled the thing and was t- careful with it all day. So that's why I think, you know, it, the race really went the way it went, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, a lot of times in that race, you know, those guys, uh, you know, we were up front the majority of the time. And, uh and then when it come down to that last bit there, uh, you know, um, when Elliot and Labonte were back there, I mean, those two guys together couldn't even take care of me. And uh, when it come down to the last part there, I was flat on the mat uh, ever since that last restart. And we were on used tires, and the car was loose, and that's why I was going on the high side. And we we had a good as car, I think, as, as, as he did, uh, in my opinion. And, uh, again, it just was down to he had tires and we didn't. And, um, you know, we were all hanging on. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was just a a very unique race and we just played it out the best you know that worked for us and then obviously the end was uh, was obviously to his dismay something that wasn't wasn't what they needed you mentioned a few minutes ago that you stayed out under that last caution and you were on older tires yeah bobby hill was in front of us he yeah. stayed out as well yeah what went into that decision why stay on the track track position point? buddy okay. you know i think buddy you know, uh, that one stop before, Buddy had come in. I said the car was free, and Buddy knocked Spoiler down. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, Buddy did yeah. what Buddy thought. I mean, you know, Buddy did what Buddy wanted to do. That was the way it was, and you just you just hung on. And uh, and you said yes, sir. And I said it was loose. Yeah, I said it was loose, and I saw him. He knocked the Spoiler down. You know, on that one that one the stop before that, and you know, the car was was free, but it was fast. And uh, you know, that last dude, he said we're going to stay out. You know, and you know, it was a matter that you know I'd get by uh, Hillen, and we did. But at that point, you know, Earnhardt had a, a run at us. He had fresh tires. And uh, once he got to that point there, I was able to get in the draft and stay with him. And I could hang with him. And I could get to his rear bumper. But I didn't have enough grip to really drive the car in the in the uh, lane that I wanted to. And I had to go to the high side. And I had to protect, uh, you know, because I had uh, Labonte and, and Bill. So, uh, you know, it was just uh, at that point, you know, you, you kind of like – you know, you kind of like know that, you know, the odds are, are, are stacked that, you know, he's probably going to win. He's on fresh tires. You're hanging on and you know how you're hanging on. And, <laughs> um, you know, that's the way it was. That last lap, what did you see? What were you feeling? What were you thinking? How did you react the whole nine yards? You know, it really, as I alluded to, the car was loose and I was having to, you know, just, you know, turn to the right and, and, and just drive up the racetrack. And, and he just kept, he could run the bottom. 
and he just kept, but he kept inching up the racetrack in front of me, just protecting because he knew I couldn't go to the bottom. And I think he just kept moving up the racetrack. And I figured that I could go to the bottom. I could hang on a lap or two, you know, on the bottom if, when, when it come down to the last lap. And that's what I would try. And so I kept staying to the high side. And I knew that when Bill and, and uh, Terry tried me down the back straightaway together, they didn't have anything for me. They had to pull back in line. I knew then that I didn't have to worry about them. I just had to worry about Dale. And so I, at the last few laps, um, I really was just concerned on trying to stay in his tracks and and try to keep my my foot on the ground on, on the on the floor and and you know um, every lap I was on his bumper going into one and uh, coming down the last lap we drove off into turn one and uh, I had caught him and I was on his I was on his bumper going off into one and I got really loose getting in there you know Terry was right there and I got loose getting in and I went right to the high side and he he followed up there to some degree but kept the bottom you know the the middle and. Uh, I lost some some ground, uh, you know, on the exit of two, and uh, going on the back straightaway. I mean, those guys were coming, and my car was starting to pick up some uh, momentum, and I, I could start to feel the thing coming back on him. And I felt like by the time I got back to our finish line, I'd be back, you know, to his rear bumper close again. But I didn't think I was going to get him, and um, you know, uh, going off into. But I had planned on going to the bottom, uh, in uh, and I was gonna I was gonna stay on the bottom and hope that I could get those guys, some momentum from those guys there and or, you know, be able to uh, to pull up to him and see if I could, you know, at least make a move. And uh, we got off into three, and it, the, the look w- of what transpired at that point was really what you saw in the movie Days of Thunder when the car turned sideways and it was slow motion. Um, really? Yeah. Wow. When I, when I, because I drove to the bottom. That lap, I drove to the bottom, and if I'd have stayed in the high side, I probably got wrecked. And uh, I drove to the bottom, and I was gonna stay on the bottom no matter what. And as that transpired, he started to slow, and I, of course, the you know the rate uh, the rate um, increased, and I started to catch him a lot quicker. And but I noticed that you know it looked like the the, the car was starting to get loose, and the thing um, he started the tail slid out, and all of a sudden it did one of those wiggles. And it went up the racetrack. And as I drove by, and I really thought we were going to hit each other at that point, yeah. you know. And uh, and then his car just moved out of the way. But it was a slow motion kind of scenario. And and all of a sudden, you know, it just he just did a masterful job, and he saved the car, and the car turned up. And I drove right by on the bottom, and then I immediately looked in the mirror and saw that I had you know a couple three car lengths on Terry and Bill, and I knew that you know that them together they couldn't get me. And uh, so I I really knew coming off four if I stayed flat on the mat and the exit was there that you know it was uh, it was going to win. I was going to win. I don't want to try to over-dramatize this, but when you saw the car wiggle and Earnhardt slide up the racetrack and you flash by and you look in the rearview mirror and you see Terry and Bill in your rearview mirror, I mean, did that quicken your pulse? How did it affect you? You know, at that time, um, I distinctly remember, you know, looking in the mirror and seeing how far uh, Terry was behind me. And I knew that, you know, that they had tried me together down the back straight and hit nothing for me. I knew my car was strong enough that they were going to struggle to get back to me with the distance we had. And I knew at that point that if I just, you know, didn't make a mistake, that I was going to win the race. And I was excited, obviously. And, but at that time, you know, you know, you just, you just do your job. And that is to make sure you look in the mirror at a restricted play race. You look in the mirror a great deal of time and you're just watching that mirror and you're just looking for them to see if they get any kind of run, any kind of momentum and just try to stop anything and, you know, uh, thwart off any, any kind of a, attempt that they would make and that's all i was really mindful of at that point until i got to the start finish line and you know at that point there it was just i think um utter relief uh you know and and adulation at that point and just you know uh the culmination of um 
you know, some life, uh, lifelong dreams fulfilled. One of the greatest quotes that I've heard, you said something to the effect of you would never forget what the sun felt like on your face mm. in Victory Lane. How much of the rest of the day do you remember? Because oh, it would it would seem it would seem to me like it would almost have to be like a dream or something. Uh, it's it's embedded in your in your memory. Uh, yeah. I I remember pretty much um, everything from that point on. Uh, I remember you know not really knowing where Victory Lane really was and coming down through there and obviously you know a little bit. Uh, uh, you know, disorientated as far as where I was at, coming down pit road and trying to figure out, you know, where where I needed to turn in. And, you know, asking buddy about that, and then seeing all the guys and seeing Teeny, you know, you know, jump on the back of the deck lid and you know, and then driving in there and um, you know, seeing all the guys, you know, that you you know. I mean, you know, the guys from RJR that you, I had relationships with and Larry Belusky and you know, I mean, just everybody that you know you'd been friends with and. Um, you know, driving in there and uh, just, you know, the thought of my father and, and you know, what we had, had had worked so hard to accomplish and all those things, you know, just, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, all the, all the stuff, you know, climbing up on the door and, um, you know, putting the picture for that big hat on and, you know, going, <laughs> yeah. you know, from there, you know, being, you know, in the cop car and going upstairs and going to the Unical suite and, you know, you know, yeah, I mean, all those things. I mean, it was just, it was a long and enduring part of it but probably the you know the most enjoyable you know hours that you could fathom uh and then you know for it to be you know over and you come back down and the transporter is the only transporter in there and you know george is there with your stuff and you know you're driving out of the place you know and uh, to the point of getting on the airplane the the next day and the next morning you know just uh, yeah just i can remember Every 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 bit of that, you know, uh, coming back to the racetrack and doing a live feed for to Tulsa for Pure Layer where they were based out of, and yeah. uh, you know the party we had afterwards, and you know get on the airplane in the morning and walk, you know, was, you had to walk outside and walk up the stairs, you know, and then you, I just looked back over at Daytona and you know just all those memories and all those thoughts, but you know the one that you spoke of, you know, I can like you said, I I don't when I think so fondly of it, I can still close my eyes and. And I can just feel the warmth, you know, and you can just put yourself back in that moment uh, pretty much at any time. It's just that life-altering, you know, in my opinion. You've been to Daytona many, many times since that day. When you go back now, is it just another racetrack, or do you feel, I guess, kind of a sense of ownership? I think you have equity in the place. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. I think that, you know, obviously with what – they do for us down there, um, you know, um, with, you know, the Daytona, the 500 club and being a part of that, um, you know, you just feel very vested, uh, in the place. And I think, you know, that, you know, like you say, you have equity in the place, you have a piece of it. And, um, I don't know, I guess I just feel at home there. Um, mm-hmm. I really, I really truly love, going to daytona beach i love being there i love driving in the place um i love just being there it's, sometimes it's just difficult to even even leave uh <laughs> you know I mean, yeah. you feel yeah. you feel you almost feel um you know disheartened to physically have to leave the grounds and and drive up 95 or get on yeah. a flight or whatever i mean just some place that you just feel very very attached to 
Now, Steve, another clip that I had that I really did want to share is one that is from an interview that I did with Kirk Shelmerdine, Dale Earnhardt's crew chief, Right. while I was in the research phase of my book, Dale versus Daytona. And I think in this clip, you will get a sense of the emotion that was taking place and certainly the very deep disappointment that Kirk felt. You guys qualified second. You swept your 125, you won the bush race, or he won the bush race, and basically runs away from the entire field. And he just, had a 40-second lead with 20 laps to go. Yeah. And we were running under 50 seconds. I mean, it was inside of 10 seconds of lapping the field. Yeah. I mean, he was catching the back of the back, yeah. and he was, I remember, he, he was getting nervous. You know, it was, it was a long green run, and he's like, y'all say something, tell me, you know, how's it, what's, how's everything? We got enough gas, everything good, to us? And Richard keys his mic and said, it wasn't, whatever it was, it wasn't in English. <laughs> if Dale was nervous, Richard was throwing up. <laughs> he couldn't even speak. And I don't know, you know, I said something like, 20 laps to go, everything's good. You know, 20 more laps and we're home. Just, yeah. just 20 good laps around here. You've done it a thousand times, you know. I mean, I was the only one that could say anything. I remember that. I don't even remember exactly what it was. But. Take me through that last lap. We had been really good at Daytona for several years now. Yeah. You know, everybody knew Dale's one of the best drivers ever there. Childers always wanted a 500. He's a race car driver. Anybody that races stock cars, it's the masters. You know, it's everything. Dale really wanted one bad, and we all wanted it badly because we had just been so close so many times, like kicked her ass forever and didn't get to finish you know? yeah so like there we were i mean we had him killed until the last lap and that was the only sick day i ever took off in 12 years in 30 years wow was that monday after that i could not get out of bed i just it was so such a letdown how many times can you go down there and have him killed like that finally we had our race you know they could throw the cars. They could do whatever the hell they wanted. Didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. And just, it was like, it was ours and then it wasn't. Like, yeah. I don't know. It just got to me. It took a piece, if you will, that doesn't get put back. Steve, something that I don't think that I realized is the fact that RCR, Richard Childress Racing, and Bob Whitcomb Racing, Derek's team, Steve, they were pitted right next to each other. Really? I'd forgotten that. Yes, they were pitted right next to each other. So coming off turn four, I'll never forget it. Will Lind, who was Dale Earnhardt's rear tire changer, he said that they had their necks craned, you know, yeah. looking up towards turn four to see what was going on. They saw the reaction from the crowd and heard the reaction from the crowd. They were expecting to win the Daytona 500. But, of course, they were not going to win the Daytona they 500. They did not. They did Dale not. was not first coming out of the fourth turn. No, he, he was fifth. And the yes. only reason he was fifth, he kept the car off the wall after it cut the tire. That was an amazing piece of driving there. To add to the disappointment, add to that, having to watch as Bob Whitcomb Racing's team celebrated on pit road. Right next to you. Oh, oh man. Oh, that, I mean, you could think what you will about Dell Earnhardt, love him or hate him. Just that disappointment. It must have just been 
almost overwhelming. Absolutely. I, I can't imagine how down they felt when that happened. And, uh, they, you know, they probably knew something was up when they heard the roar of the crowd after what occurred in the second turn. They didn't know what it was. When we talked to Buddy for the Scene Vault podcast, Buddy said that he had told Derek to win that race at any cost. Right. When I talked to him, he said that he thought that Derek had actually wrecked Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. And he was expecting a fight to break out. <laughs> well, with them pitting next to each other, they evidently didn't have very far to go. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. So he had, uh, even though he had told Derek to go and win the race any way he could, I don't think it was really uh, his intent to take Dale out. But he thought that Derek, making the move, had done that. And a lot of people could imagine that situation, you know, given the circumstances. But that's not what it was. The door was open for Derek. And his only task was to beat Terry Labonte and Ricky Rudd and Bill Elliott to the finish line, which he did by two car lengths over Terry. Well, I love Derek's description of that instant where Dale started to slide up the track because he said that it was a days of thunder moment when everything started to go into slow motion. He said that all along his plan was to dive low, to try to get under right. Dale, to maybe right. try to root under there and, and maybe get position. So he said that as he started to make that move underneath Dale, Dale started sliding up the racetrack, and all of a sudden here's this great big wide open gaping hole yeah. for him to make the move for the lead. He also said after the race that he really didn't have anything for Dale which I'm sure the buddy knew as well, because that's why you told Derek to go out and try to win any way you can. And making that move down low was the right thing to do at that particular point in time, because that was the only way you're going to get around Dale if you were going to get around him. Uh, and that's a big if. But as the case turned out, uh, Dale just drifted way up the track, as we said many times, and it just opened the door. And I think Derek was just, as he sort of insinuated, he was just stunned by how the whole thing turned out. So Derek Cope wins the Daytona 500. He goes to victory lane. And something that he's said for nearly 30 years now, he said that he will never forget the feeling of the warmth of the sun on his face in victory lane. Uh, and certainly that was a career-defining moment for sure, Derek Cope. Sure. Certainly it was the highlight of his career. No, he won't forget it and hasn't to this day and don't expect him to ever forget <laughs> it. But I don't consider his victory a fluke by any means. No. Steve, let me ask you this. In terms of upsets in NASCAR history, where does this rank? It ranks pretty high, to be very honest with you. I don't know if I would call it the, the, the greatest upset. Certainly it's one of them. You would have to put Trevor Bain. Right. In the 2011 That's Daytona 500. Sure. I think that you would have to put maybe Jamie McMurray winning in just his second right. Winston Cup start ever. Maybe, possibly, Kevin Harvick winning at Atlanta, Atlanta yeah. in 2001. 1981, Ron Bouchard, yeah. third place on the yeah. last lap at yeah. Talladega. Yeah. And passes both Terry Labonte and Darrell Waltrip to win as a yeah. rookie. Pete Hamilton, yeah. 1970 Daytona 500. There are many that you could make a case for. I would maybe put Trevor Bain and Derek Cope pretty close. I pretty think doggone close. You have to, to consider you the reason that these upsets carry so much weight. Consider who is involved. Yeah. Derek Cope not expected to win. Going to lose easily to the great Dale Earnhardt, 
and does not wins the race. Trevor Bank, come on. <laughs> I mean, he's with the Woodbridge. Granted, right. granted, this was a situation where I think that particular Daytona 500 was a big patch of guesswork because they were running those paired drafts. The tandem. Yeah, yeah tandem yeah. drafts, yeah. they call it. I, yeah. I'd never seen it. Didn't yeah. know what was going to happen. Yeah. Nobody did either. Trevor Bain, he took advantage of it, won the race. I love conversations like these because there's simply no way to quantify it. No. If I say Trevor Bain, then it's Trevor Bain. If you say Derek Cope, then it's Derek Cope. Right. If somebody else says Pete Hamilton in 1970, then it's Pete Hamilton. Right. You can't win the argument, but you can sure fuss about it. I have a lot of fun with it, too. <laughs> but what we're talking about right now is right. one of the things that has elevated NASCAR through the years, made it what it is, uh, that type of competition. It's always been great for the sport, but it's been wonderful for the fans. And I think the thing that I like about it is the fact that it proves beyond the faintest shadow of a doubt, when you go to a race, anything can happen. Anybody can win given the right circumstances. Absolutely. I've said that many times. I couldn't agree with you more. For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. All right, Steve, this week the NASCAR circuit travels all the way out to Phoenix, Arizona. You and I were discussing what race we could maybe dive into. It kind of scared me because when I sent you a note and said that maybe we could look at the November 9th, 1989 edition of Winston Cup scene, the Phoenix race out there that was won by Bill Elliott, you sent me a text and you said, you know what? That's kind of strange. I was thinking the very same thing. <laughs> Steve, we can't possibly. No. We can't possibly be thinking a lot. Uh, no, no. I certainly hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's another proof of the value of what we're trying to do with the scene archive. Because when I started thinking about talking about this race, my biggest reason basically was because that was the day my first son was born. Really? Yes. Richard Lee Houston. Now, that name is not an accident, by the way. <laughs> Richard was born that evening. And that was the first race that year that I had not been in front of the TV. I was at the hospital with my then wife. How about that? But the cool thing about this race was once I started going through that issue of Winston Cup scene, it kind of brought back a lot of memories because that wasn't just another run-of-the-mill race at Phoenix. It was won by Bill Elliott. Right. He had kind of stayed in position to win the race, hadn't made a big splash that day. The race was actually dominated by Rusty Wallace until, until, now until. lap 255. Now, tell us what happened on lap 255. On lap 255, <laughs> Rusty got into an incident. And who did he get into? Stan Barrett. Right. Not to be confused with his son, Stanton Barrett, who later raced in the Bush Series. The Hollywood stuntman turned driver. 
who was racing a car for Junie Dunleavy. And he was 14 laps down 14. at the time. 14. 14. At the time. It got a tangle with Wallace. Now, how do you think? There's a couple of things that come into play here. Number one, Russ has taken out of any chance to win the race. All right? Number two, he's in a tight race for the championship with Yahoo, Dale Earnhardt. And number three, he gets wrecked by a car that's 14 laps down. Now, you cannot be a happy man at all. If you're driving a car that gets taken out of the lead by somebody who is 14 laps down, what are you going to say? I can't repeat it here on the air, but <laughs> you can imagine. Now, Steve, we've not heard anybody complaining about lap cars recently, have we? <laughs> <laughs> there haven't been that many of them. <laughs> Martin Truex, I hope you're listening. <laughs> but in the paper, Rusty was fairly diplomatic. He said it was a lapped car. The guy runs two or three races a year, and I lapped him about 10 times. He wrecks me. I can't believe it. I thought I was going to clinch it, meaning the championship here, because I had a huge lead at times. There's no use getting mad. I can't jump up and down and scream about it. You just shake your head and go on. Barrett apologized, and I guess he meant it. I just wish the inexperienced drivers would come out earlier in the year instead of right there at the end when there's strategic stuff going on. Now, his crew chief at the time was a man that you know very well because you worked with him on TV. But Barry Dotson, after that race, (laughs) he was full-on conspiracy theory. He wasn't holding anything back. He said... In the paper, it's awful strange to me that some stunt driver who's never been a race car driver and still isn't a race car driver in a car that can't afford to race three hours from home all of a sudden shows up 3,000 miles away in Phoenix and almost knocks us out of the race. Besides that, not only did that same stunt car driver not have any used tires in his pits, but he had somebody else's tires (laughs) in his pits. Who do you think that might be? You've already named a suspect (laughs) in Richard Childers Racing and Dale Earnhardt. What Barry was saying was basically that RCR somehow hired or paid for Junie Dunleavy Racing to come out to Phoenix and basically take Rusty out of the race. Uh, Talk about a conspiracy theory. If you look at the video, it kind of sort of maybe with that in mind does look kind of sort of suspicious. I'm sure it does. I mean, there's no proof, is there? No, there's no proof. And I will say this. Barry Dotson went on to say their plan worked for them. I heard it at the airport when we got here that it would be done, that somebody would do it. And I see the three team has got the 90 cars, new tires. The only problem with this entire theory of Barry's is this. Junie Dunleavy wasn't that kind of person. No, I was just going to say that. He would not be involved in anything like that. No, so it makes for an interesting story, and it makes for something to talk about 30 years later, Steve. Absolutely, and it makes for high drama going into Atlanta. Yeah. Well, Rusty could have been in a much better position to win the championship when he came to Atlanta. He was not. He had to finish 19th or better to win the championship. And at one point in that race, he was 33rd. <laughs> I mean, he all yeah. kinds of misfortunes yeah. happened to him, and he was like 33rd at one point in the race. Now, all of a sudden, the tension mounts. Not only for him, but for his fans and his crew and his team. And 
Us in the press box, we're paying strict attention to a college in 33rd place. Now, Rusty did manage to claw his way back up. He did manage to finish 15th, which got him the championship. But guess what? He only won it by 12 points. 12. Up until that time, one wow. of the closest races in NASCAR's history. Going into Phoenix, Rusty had a 109-point lead. Coming out of Phoenix, he had a 78-point lead. Right. To be in his shoes, to be chasing that championship after everything that had happened to him and with him that year, of course, you know, with all the controversy with Darrell Waltrip in the 1989, the Winston All-Star Race, right. it had to have been heavy, heavy, heavy on his mind. Absolutely. And that, that span of races from Phoenix to Atlanta, where he lost so much ground, you know, yeah. and, and, and was in a position to have to really watch what he was doing in Atlanta. Be very, very careful. He could not take chances. Well, he had to take chances when he fell back so far in the field. He could probably see that championship slipping away. But give him credit. He clawed his way back, and he just barely got into the top 19 <laughs> to win the championship. The guy had to be rolling in sweat with tension. Hello, I'm Terry Labonte, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, that about does it for this episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. Listeners, if you have any questions or comments, scenevault at yahoo.com and on iTunes. We are at 71 five-star ratings, and 40 written reviews. Ten more, Steve, and I'm going to have to give these books away. Come on, Ken. Come on. <laughs> Come on, people. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes, and when we get to 50, one of those reviewers will receive a copy of every single NASCAR-related book I've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> written. One of the written reviews, Steve, that I wanted to share, highly recommended for the diehard NASCAR fan. Rick Houston and Steve Wade are excellent together sharing the history of our sport. That's from BJB App User. We make a good team, Steve. I think so, and thank you, BJB. Now, let me ask you this. Yeah. Are you Butch or are you Sundance? Oh, I'm Sundance. <laughs> <laughs>